Welcome to the Parent Guide to GCSE podcast. This is the second part of the interview with Dr. Mark King, who is the admissions tutor at Lucy Cavendish College at Cambridge University. So far, he's covered everything from GCSE's A-levels to the start of the process to get into one of the Oxford or Cambridge University colleges. And in the second part, he goes on to talk through the rest of the process. So here we go. So uh, we've got as far as the, um, well, hopefully getting an interview offer. Um, what, if we, if we talk specifically about the interview, what preparation needs to go into it? What's the interview about? What's the setup? How does the day look? In normal circumstances, I dare say this year, potentially you're not entirely sure how interview day will be, uh, will be happening. Could be, like, uh, could be uh, virtual, I suppose. It, it, yeah, so, so Oxford have already announced, Oxford have, have already stated publicly that all of their interviews are going to be virtual this year. Um, Cambridge haven't yet uh, made such a, such a kind of clear-cut statement, if you like, as that, but we are anticipating that most interviews will be virtual this year. We are, we are considering whether we wish to push the interview process a little bit back or extend it um, into the early spring this year for some subjects where there is benefit to interviewing in person. So what you, makes a fabulous interviewee then? Yeah, okay. So um, what makes a fabulous interviewee? I think the, the, the get out of jail question there, the answer is that it, it varies from subject to subject, right? Um, and no two people nice look alike. Um, yeah, thanks. But broadly speaking, what are, we, what are we looking for? So the best way to think about interviews is to, to, to think of them as a mock supervision. Okay, so remember what I've already said about this, this unique small group, often one-on-one teaching that we have at Cambridge, right? Think of the interview as being a, a mock one of those, right? We're recreating that educational environment, we're putting you in it, and we're seeing how, how you respond to this particular method of teaching, if you're someone who will benefit from this style of teaching that we use at Cambridge. Um, so what sort of things do we do? Well, obviously, we'll ask you all sorts of questions, right? We might ask you questions about things that are in your personal statement. We might ask you questions about things that are in your submitted written work. For some courses, particularly arts and humanities, we require you to send in examples of your essays, um, and we might ask you questions about those. We might ask you questions about all sorts of other, you know, academic interests that you've expressed to us at various different points in the application process. And we might get into quite a lot of detail about these actually, you know, if you, if you tell us that you've read a particular book or something, then we might want to know, okay, I've, I've read that too. What did you think of the argument? Or actually maybe I might say, actually, I've never read that. So I want you to explain it to me. Um, and, I want, and then I'm gonna bring in some sort of, some context to this. I'm gonna add in some information that I know, something that's familiar to me. And I'm gonna ask you to, to consider that in the light of this author's argument, whatever it might be, right? Um, so we're sort of rigging up this, this academic discussion, as I say, and focusing it on something. And that might be this kind of work that you've submitted in advance, your interest, or it might be something else. It might be something that we have with us. So I might, as a historian, for example, I might give you a historical source and ask you to, to work your way through it. Right? I might give you some time beforehand in the library to go and read this historical source and to familiarize yourself with it. And then I'll bring you into the, to the interview and I'll ask you what you made of this source, what kind of inferences you might want to draw from it. 
and I'll add in some context and some information as we go, and I'll try and sort of help you to develop your answers. Yeah? Or for sciences and maths, you know, you might be given a sheet of, of problems to work your way through in advance. Mathematics, physics problems, you, you know, you get the idea. And again, you work your way through those, you bring them into the interview, um, and your interviewers will try and teach you through the material. How far could you get on your own? How much further can you then get if they support you and try and help you to develop your answers to the particular questions? It's all about having these kind of academic educational conversations and, and trying basically to teach you whatever we're focusing on. We'll be wanting to explore your ideas and then to see how we can develop them with you. So what, for, each, for each candidate, uh, you have a, a, a you've already decided what you're going to ask them is that so because they'll have different subjects different yeah i, I think i think typically right so you would you know with, with someone's personal statement you'll go through and you'll kind of highlight key things that you want to mention and discuss with them um it might link into certain themes that you're interested in or ideas that you've got so you might you might try and draw those inferences out and explore them with them you might also then as i say have this kind of set body of additional material that you're going to bring in, right? The whole point of which is that it's new material, you know, exercises that you'll ask the candidate to go through. A, a very common one for a lot of science um, and maths degrees at the moment is you give someone a, a function and you ask them to sketch the graph of the function, right? Or chemistry, you give them a series of chemical equations, you ask them to run through the equation, balance it out for you and things. Yeah. So Idiot. think about think about what we're doing here, right? We're doing we're assessing two different things. We are assessing knowledge levels and the foundation of knowledge that you've got, yeah? Particularly, I think, for science and maths, because you have to have that, that again, is why the A-levels are important. You have to have that foundation for us to then be able to build on with you at university. Um, if you don't have that, that foundation knowledge, you, you will not make progress on the university course. It's as simple as that. So we do need to assess that. Um, and, you know, that's what the admissions assessments are doing as well. So you can, you can see this as a is in a sense checking, if you like, what you know. Do you already know um, the kind of things that you should know, that you should have gained from your A-level courses to date, such that you have got this academic foundation for study at our, at our university? But then the other thing that we're trying to do is, if you like, to assess the skills that you've developed during your education, so subject-specific skills. So that's why, as a historian, I would give you this completely random historical source. You know, the, the pretty picture on my wall behind me is, is an example of the kind of thing that I've used in the past. It's deliberately something that I know about because it's from the period of history that I study, but it's completely obscure to the candidate. They've never seen it before. So I'm not there assessing their knowledge. What I'm doing is I'm assessing their ability, their skill as a historian to, to read a source in some way and to extract information from that source and to use that information to kind of develop an interpretation. And then I add more information in, I might challenge, I might support, I could do all sorts of different things. And I see how they incorporate that into their argument to develop what they're saying. Yeah. So the, the two key things here, if you like, are, you know, do you know what you should know? Have you got the correct foundation of knowledge? Um, and then the second thing is, how do you then respond when we give you something different? Have you got the skills that you need to bring these new ideas in, to bring this new information or evidence in and to try to make sense of it and to incorporate it into your thinking? Because this is what you will do every single week, right? At Cambridge, you'll attend your lectures, you'll be given your work by your supervisor, but you'll go away and make sense 
aspects of it in the first instance. You will have to process that yourself first, and then you will bring the products, if you like, of that processing to the supervisor who will develop them with you. So what we're doing, as I say, is basically mocking up the educational system that we have here and running you through it in a kind of test run scenario and seeing how you respond to this. If you've got the kind of things that we're looking for to really be able to make the most of this system and to flourish in our environment. So from the point of the interview, I mean, anyone who's ever had a job uh, or everyone's been through an interview process, it's not a pleasant situation. It's something that you're very nervous about. Now, some students, particularly at the age of you know, 17, 18, yep. are not particularly well equipped. They're not particularly Absolutely. outgoing. Yep. Would that uh, count against them no. in any no. way at the interview stage? Yeah, so you're quite right. And, and it's also true, uh, I think this is totally fair to say, it's also absolutely true that students' backgrounds can, can hugely influence how comfortable they feel, the kind of education they've experienced to date. You know, Some students are in schools where these kind of academic conversations are taking place on a daily basis. Some students are in schools where they've never actually once expressed their own interest in the subject and what's at the foundation of that, right? Um, so the interview has to, has to take into account all of this and not um, you know, in any way disadvantage anyone because of because of how they're feeling in that setting. Um, so we assume that everybody will be nervous. We assume that everybody will stumble over their words. We assume that everybody will require help and support at some point in the interview. It's not at all about how you come across. And crucially here, let's also let's also make a real basic point here. Um, there's no dress code or anything like that. Right? The number of people that turn up wearing full-on suits, and it's quite clear there's an interviewer that this is the first time this person has ever worn a suit, and all it's doing is just making them feel more nervous because they kind of sat tightly buttoned up like this. You, know? um, you don't need to do that. It's okay. You're not, it's, not, it's not who you are. It's not how you look that we care about at all. It's what's going on up here. That's the only thing we care about. So don't worry about how you come across. Don't worry about how you're dressed. It's not like a job interview in that sense at all. You're not trying to impress us in that way. Um, indeed, you know, you're, and, and in, terms of, in terms of how sort of comfortable you feel, you know, your, your interviewer may also actually be quite a reticent person. A lot of academics are by nature. That's absolutely fine, you know? This is not in any way about, about as I say, trying to have trying to give a particular impression of yourself. What students should always try and do if they're feeling nervous is just, just try as, as hard as they can to relax and just try to engage with the material to let their natural intellectual curiosity come out and show in whatever way it shows for them and just to try to engage with whatever they're being asked to engage with. If they want to ask for help, that's fine. If they want to express their nerves, that's fine. Um, a lot of students tend to begin, you know, you ask them a question and, and they, they want to put that little caveat in at the start of the answer. They often start by saying something like, well, I'm not sure, but maybe, um, or I've never studied this before, but perhaps, and, you know, and that's fine. You can, you can do that. That's okay. The crucial thing is don't stop at I'm not sure, or I've never studied this, right? Try Try and have a go. Try and work it out. Don't get over that natural reluctance that I know everybody feels. You don't, you don't want to say something stupid. It'll be thought of as being stupid. You don't want to say something wrong. We know that you're going to feel like that. It's okay. Just try and get over that reluctance. Engage with what you're being asked to engage with. Express what you think. 
talk us through the thought process that has led you to reach that kind of conclusion, or even just talk us through your thoughts as far as you can take them. If you can't quite get to a conclusion, that's fine. And we will step in. We'll pick up on that thought process. We'll pick up on whatever conclusions you have drawn, etc., and we'll help you to develop them. Okay. It sounds very much not, like relaxing and, and just try and enjoy the process. It's, it's yeah. try, try and enjoy it as an academic conversation, right? Try and see this as hopefully an intellectually stimulating uh, engagement in an intellectually stimulating environment, a chance to come and just talk through some things that are a bit different that you're probably not going to see again or, or you know, that you might never seen before. That's, that's fine. See it, see it as what it is. Try and enjoy it for what it is as much as you can. Give it your best shot. Yeah, so just, just try and talk us through your thought processes. The worst kind of interviews, the ones, the ones that go wrong, are where students don't want to express themselves at all. So they give very, very short answers and they won't explain what they're thinking. That's, that's where things end up um, not Whereas working. Whereas there's conversation you where you're, they give a short exactly. answer and you're like, you're clearly wanting a bit more information. Yeah, and, and you can't understand what they're thinking and what's actually led them to that answer, you know? People, again, people often assume this is about getting a right answer. There may well not be a right or wrong answer, actually, to the question you've been asked. It's more an intellectual exercise that's designed to get you thinking about things. So just try and always, as I say, talk us through those thought processes. Think, best way to think about this, you know how in a maths exam, you get points for showing you're working. Right. Think of this as the verbal equivalent of that. So it's how you come to the answer that's almost more important than the answer. A lot of the time. Yeah. Obviously, science and maths, you know, there will often be a right answer, but, but, yeah. but certainly arts and humanities. Yeah. Most of the time, if you know, I might just be playing devil's advocate with you. I'm just asking um, things to, to just to sort of probe and test and, and explore different ideas with you. I don't necessarily have a kind of set response that I it, it does looking for from you, you say in response it does sound to me like you actually yeah well you obviously enjoy your job full stop but the the interview process is something that you relish you really enjoy the ability to talk at an intellectual level with these no doubt incredibly gifted students yeah it's fantastic um and actually every year you, you learn something from interviews every single year you interview someone and they say something and you think you know i've never actually thought about it from that perspective before that's really true i'm going to go away and think about that a bit more um, yeah, it's fantastic. And that's exactly what happens with supervisions when they come as well. That's why supervising is such a great experience, not just for the student, but also for the teacher, um, because you gain so much from engaging with a small number of students in a really direct and detailed way about this subject material. I mean, you've already said that the, the interview is you know, it's just one part of the process. Do you uh, come away from interviews with particular candidates thinking they are absolutely superb, they need to come to my college? Yeah, and sometimes it will be ones that you thought would be superb from their paper application, and sometimes it will be other ones, right? Ones who you, you've looked at the application and you've thought, um, yeah, this, this looks like a, a credible candidate, I'm not sure, um, let's see what they're like at interview, and then they absolutely blow you away. But, but crucially, don't take that to mean that the interview is make or break, okay? I think, I think people, interviews are important, definitely. And they do play a significant role in the decision-making process. But I think people often assume that this is a kind of stepping stone process and the interview is the final hurdle. And if you pass the interview, you get an offer. No, there will be people every single year 
who will have really strong applications on paper. They will have done well in their assessments, etc. Um, but then they get to interview and for whatever reason, it just doesn't quite work for them that day. You know, maybe they're really nervous. Maybe they, um, you know, we end up talking about things that actually they really haven't got a clue about. And so they're, they're struggling to engage, etc. Um, and you come away off the back of it and you think, okay, that didn't go as well as I was hoping it would do. That's a shame. But ultimately, I'm not necessarily going to go back on my original verdict. You know, if all of the other evidence suggests this person is really strong, then you put it down to a bad day at the interview and it doesn't prevent you making that offer. Yeah, it can work the other way. You can have somebody whose paper file makes you think, no, I, I don't think this person's likely to be successful. And then either in the assessment or an interview, you know, they completely blow it out of the park and you think, actually, yeah, I, I, I want to give this person a go. I've seen something there that I like and I want to make them the offer and give them that chance to demonstrate what they can do in examinations and then hopefully admit them in the summer, you know? Um, but, but as I say, don't, don't, don't fixate on interviews. Don't, don't think that they are the absolute make or break moment because all that will do is just ramp up the pressure on you. They are important, but this is a holistic process. At the end of it, when we're sat there in those decision meetings, we're going through these files, and they're still physical paper files at this point, and we are literally looking at every piece of information we have about the candidate and, and taking all of it into account when we're making that final decision. Fab. So that uh, takes us on. If you're successful um, at interview or not necessarily successful, if, you, if you've done enough uh, across your entire application uh, and you are lucky enough to receive an offer, when does that offer arrive and what would a student typically do once they've got the offer in their back pocket? Yeah, sure. Um, so at, at the moment, again, bear in mind that this year the timetable may end up being slightly different because of COVID. But in a normal year, what would happen is interviews would take place in the first fortnight of December, probably. Um, and then you would normally receive your offer in mid-January. Um, so the, the, the pooling process that I mentioned earlier, um, where applicants are exchanged between colleges, that takes place normally in the first week of January, it often begins on the 2nd of January, which is lots of fun for all of us, as you can probably imagine. Um, and then, and then we make our and then we make our final decisions, we narrow down to a final cohort, direct applicants, poolies, etc. And those decisions go out in, in January. Um, and that can be, as I say, one of three outcomes, right? Yes, you've been accepted, made an offer by the college you applied to. No, unfortunately, you've been rejected. Um, or, yes, you've been accepted, but it's not by the college you applied to. It's by a different college because you were pooled and your application has been taken out of the college, out of the pool. Yeah? We do also, where people have been pooled and have ultimately been unsuccessful, we do let them know that that happened. We want them to know that we thought they were a credible applicant and we tried our best for them. Yeah? Particularly okay. because often at that point, we'll be talking to those people potentially about adjustment as well and reminding them that, you know, they, they may well have this opportunity for, for additional consideration later in the process. So even so if they've been rejected, still yeah. work incredibly hard because... Absolutely. Get the grades and it may well be worth it. Yeah. How is adjustment different to clearing then? Uh, so, well, clearing is typically for people. Clearing is typically for people who have either failed the terms of all of their offers, or people who have chosen to reject all of their offers. Right? They've they've withdrawn, if you like, from the initial UCAS process, and they put themselves back in for consideration at clearing. Yeah. Cambridge doesn't take part in clearing. Um, we don't have any places available through clearing. Adjustment is a separate process. Adjustment allows people to continue to hold their first choice and their, and their insurance UCAS offer 
um, whilst still making themselves available for consideration by other universities that they consider to be preferable to their first choice. Yeah, so you're, you're, you're sort of trading up in adjustment, if you like, based on your grades. Yeah. Um, go on. So I'm going to say, uh, in terms of the, um, the offer being received, you said uh, January, is there a particular day where they have to sit by their post box or is it emailed? Is it, how does it arrive? Yeah, so, so they'll get emailed. We'll, we'll tell them in advance which dates can be. I think this year it's the 16th of January, um, but we, we publish in advance the, the decision day. Um, and what will happen is normally, again, those of us who work in admissions will come in very, very early in the morning and make sure that those emails go out kind of at the crack of dawn so that nobody's left staring at their, at their inbox all day. Um, and so you get nowadays you get an email straight away that tells you what the decision is. And if it is... And, and, then a, and then a formal letter normally follows it up. Yeah? Okay. So you get a decision, but sometimes um, you might have to wait uh, a day or two for the, for the post, if you like, to come with the actual formal letter. Yeah? So potentially stupid question. Uh, you get your offer. Um, it is two A stars and an A. Um, yep. Between mid-January and your first exam, the message is you just got to work really hard. Yeah. Now, this, this interestingly, actually, is an area that a lot of colleges are really thinking about at the university. Um, <clears throat> And it's one of the things that, that I'm thinking a lot about at the moment, because it, it does strike me as being the whole in our provision, if you like. You know, there's an awful lot of support at the pre-application stage. There's an awful lot of guidance. You know, when you're, when you're actually applying to a college, that college takes you under its wing and it basically sends you, in some cases, almost daily emails kind of saying, right, this is now the next part of the process. Here's what you need to do now, et cetera. And then, yeah, I, I understand that students can often then feel like they get this offer and they're delighted, but equally the grades are terrifyingly high and then they're kind of left to sink or swim. Um, so there are things that we're increasingly doing. And a number of colleges are now looking at, at what are effectively mentoring systems, um, not provided by the university itself because that would involve conflict of interest, but working with third parties, charities, etc., to try to provide various different kinds of support for students who we identify as having great academic potential, but we're worried for whatever reason may not meet the terms of their offer. So this is, I think, a, a work in progress, um, and it's something that um, you know the university is continuing to consider. But but to my mind, this is this is an important priority that um, that we should be looking at as a way to to really try to ensure that students are um, given support. To, to give you an example, you know. Um, a college that I've previously worked at has a scheme where if you um, are a maths offer holder, so you have to sit these additional exams, the step exams that I mentioned earlier alongside your A-levels, um, we, we appreciate that not all schools are going to be able to provide support for step um, candidates. So we used to provide a, a tutoring system that we paid for ourselves. Um, and it was with um, a head of mathematics uh, who was now retired from school um, and who had a connection with the university. And we just used to employ him on a part-time basis to provide this tutoring to try to support these candidates. It was only a few of them, but it was the ones who basically we knew their schools wouldn't be able to help them do this. So we are, I think, increasingly trying to address this problem. We are certainly aware of it. Um, and if, you know, if, if students at that stage, you know, you're an offer holder. So if, if anything, the college only wants to support you more. It wants to keep you even closer, you know. I think that's the stage where, again, if, if candidates are, are, are looking at their offers and are thinking, this is great, but I'm worried, or I have concerns, or something's going on, whatever it might be, always, again, get back in touch with the college, you know, and, and explain to us what's happening, or explain to us the kind of worries you have. 
and we'll try and support you in whatever way we can. We can direct you. There's a whole host of on online content as well, which is really useful. So we can direct you to all sorts of different resources that we're aware of that are freely accessible um, that people can can use to, to try to sort of supplement their in-school studies to give them the best chance of, of getting those grades. Fabulous. Uh, right now, thank you very much. I mean, we are getting towards the end of the uh, the, the time, I suppose. But um, do you mind if we just quickly go through some uh, frequently asked questions? Yeah, sure. Which I dare say, you know, um, I mean, I've jotted a few down, but uh, you must uh, get them all the time. So, you know, the sort of the more popular ones. Yeah. Um, one thing that I'm interested in is uh, deferrals for this year. Obviously, a lot of people will be under offer at the moment to Cambridge and Oxford. Um, and you know, they're looking at their first year not being normal because of the situation we find ourselves in with the pandemic. Are people deferring? What's your policy on asking for a deferral? Sure. So at the moment, um, I can tell you, I'm <coughs> not actually receiving a lot of deferral requests at all, barely, barely any. Um, and that's not just me speaking on part of my college. Um, this is something I'm aware of across the entire university. We've received very few undergraduate deferral requests. Um, the university policy at the moment is that it won't consider COVID related deferral requests until confirmation in the summer because we don't know what those final student numbers are yet going to be. So basically this will all be considered alongside A-level results in the summer when we have a sense of what our numbers are looking like. And at the moment basically we, we can't really say anything more than that because we simply don't know what the situation is going to be. I think it's worth saying though that you know the university has been planning for months and will continue to plan to ensure that students have the best possible experience next year. You know, we are going to be open. We are going to be welcoming our students back into our colleges to come and live and study in residence. We will follow the guidance of Public Health England. We will ensure social distancing protocols are adhered to where they need to be and in circumstances where that's appropriate. We're looking at ways in which we can socially bubble students, you know, to allow for people to, to mix and mingle in a way that doesn't always require social distancing. We've taken the decision that mass lectures, so this is you know, lectures with, with large numbers of attendees will go purely online next year. Um, but that's actually at Cambridge, a very small part of our teaching, you know. Practical sessions, laboratory sessions, um, classes, seminars, and most importantly, those supervisions will all take place in person just like they would normally do. If we free up the lecture halls, we can host classes in rooms that, you know, we can host classes of 10 people in rooms that are designed for 50, and then that's fine. Everybody can sit a little bit further apart. Academics offices are big enough, and particularly if you're supervising one-on-one, -on -one, you know, it's fine. You, you, can, you can do this whilst making sure that everybody stays safe. So we, we, we do think that we have, you know, still got a fantastic offering for students next year. And therefore, our preference is that if you hold an offer for 2020 entry, that you do come in 2020, unless there is some very pressing reason to do with your health, or your financial circumstances, whatever it might be, um, that, that means that you absolutely cannot take up your offer this year. In which case, you know, that's, that's where you should be letting your college know about that. I'm um, going back to the original um, application process. Can you apply to both Oxford and Cambridge? So, no, you cannot at undergraduate level. You can at postgraduate, but not at undergraduate level. And the reason for that is because of the complexity of the admissions process. Because we both have these assessments that you would sit at the same time, because we both typically have always run our interviews at exactly the same time. If we were in a position where you could apply to both, it would be administratively even more challenging than it already is to actually make this process work. If you know, both of us were kind of competing to try to get you in on the same day to interview you. 
Um, so we've always we've always done it that way. You, you can, UCAS will not let you submit an application. It, it okay. electronically blocks it. Okay. And as a follow up to that, so if I apply uh, to Cambridge and then to my four other choices, um, does do the other choices know who else you've applied to, or, is, or do they only get the information about their particular university? So we cannot tell when you apply which other universities you have applied to. When you actually make your choices, when you accept one as your firm choice and you accept one as your insurance choice um, and then reject the others, at that point, UCAS updates and we can tell which universities you originally applied to, but not at the stage at which your application is under consideration. However, I think it is probably worth saying that, you know, if you apply before the 15th of October, and your grades are in line with the ones that we would ask for at Oxford and Cambridge, universities will often expect that you may have applied to us too. Mm. But that, in my experience, that has never caused them to treat anybody differently. You know, no, no university is in the process of not making an offer to someone because it's worried that they applied somewhere else. You know, we're, we're all interested in getting the students that we want to admit to our university and getting the students that we think are really strong. Um, so, so don't worry that by applying to Oxford or Cambridge, you will thereby somehow disadvantage yourself at another university. It, it just doesn't work that way. Okay. And going back again to uh, personal statements, work experience for an Oxbridge mm. statement, is that important? Um, so for Oxford and Cambridge, I think it's, it's, I think it's fair to say that work experience is probably less important than it is at other universities. Um, even, even in subjects like medicine and veterinary medicine, we are unusual in that we don't have a fixed work experience requirement like other subjects do. Now that said, if you are applying for medicine, if you are applying for vet med, or if you're applying for another you know, course that has a kind of vocational side to it, so I'm thinking here of engineering, or maybe law, perhaps even economics. Um, architecture is another good example of Cambridge. Courses where the subject does lead into a particular future career. If you have gained some relevant work experience and you can use that to demonstrate that you understand both the professional side of your course and the academic side of your course, then that can be useful, that's definitely true. But in most other circumstances, I think that work experience is perhaps of, of less use. Um, we often do get personal statements where students spend an awful lot of time talking about the work experience. And, you know, that's fine. And transferable skills they gain from it are always valuable. But when writing personal statements, and indeed in the application, my advice is always to focus first and foremost on your academic enrichment activities and the things that you've done that have helped you really to understand your subject in more detail. That, those are the most important things. To, to take, again, my subject, which is history, you know, I don't think that there is work experience that makes you a better historian. I think you become a better historian by reading more history, you know? So I wouldn't necessarily look for work experience in an applicant. I think it's always, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it and people's schools will encourage them to do it. Of course they will. But I think it's always worth trying to think about, you know, on the one hand, what are you going to do in year 12 that's going to be valuable for your university application? And on the other hand, what are you going to do in year 12 that's going to be valuable for your future career? Those two things might not actually be the same. And work experience can be a good example of something that fits into one box, but perhaps not the other one. Because I mean, by going taking the history example, yeah, if you have a student as a tutor when they said, "Right, I want to do history at university," fantastic. But right, what what work experience do I do? Do they go to the local museum? It's, it's exactly not, right. not relevant. Um, 
No, and, and, and indeed, and, and I've had those exact conversations with students at interview, you know, they go, oh, my work experience is really useful. And I go, well, do you want to work in a museum one day? And they go, oh, no. And you say, well, how, how was it useful then? You know, or, or I helped teach history in school. Okay, do you want to be a teacher? Oh, no. Well, again, what, what, his, what did you actually learn about the past by doing this? You know, that's, that's what I care about. You know? So I, I certainly think for arts and humanities, that's, that's fair. As I say, for, for certain subjects with the vocational dimension can be useful. And I'd never encourage someone not to do work experience. Of course not. You gain an awful lot of things by doing this, right? But as I say, keep in mind always, is it academic? Is it relevant to the subject I'm applying for? Yes, then fabulous. Talk about it in the personal statement. That holds true for everything. Is it not academic? Is it not relevant actually to the subject that I'm applying for? And this holds true for a whole range of extracurricular activities as well. You know, if you're not applying for a sport course, then actually I don't really, I'm not particularly interested in whether you play sport at a good level. It's a fantastic thing that you do, but it's not going to influence my academic decision of you. You know, if, if you, <laughs> the, the classic one um, is the number of students that always talk about how Duke of Edinburgh Award gave them leadership skills and things. Again, I'm not saying it was a bad thing for you to do. I'm sure it was hugely personally valuable, but my judgment, first and foremost, is an academic one. I'm assessing whether or not I think you will make a good student on our course, not actually all of these other skills. Those are important to you in different ways. So, I mean, reading around the subjects is way more important than... Far more important. Around well, the, uh, yeah. We, we call it supercurricular enrichment, right? Anything that you've done, so that means literally going above and beyond what you're doing in school. You know? Anything that you've done that is academic, relevant to the subject, and is engaged to learn. Um, future learn courses are a perfect example of this kind of thing. You know? A way of developing your knowledge of, of subjects in a little bit more detail, going a bit beyond your kind of formal school curriculum. An EPQ is another good example of this kind of thing because nobody makes you do one. It's not compulsory, it's part of A-levels. Mm. Um, there are all sorts of things. And again, as universities, we publish great big long lists of suggested resources for subject enrichment, but, the, but always focus on the academic and the subject focused, not the extracurricular and the broad. We, we're not like, you know, the, I think there is this assumption that we're like the Ivy League universities in America. The Ivy League universities seem to want people to be incredibly broad, varied individuals who've got kind of every single skill. You know, they work for charities, they've climbed every mountain, they've done all sorts of interesting things, they play every instrument in every sport, etc. No, we're not interested in that at all. We are making an academic judgment on you. Our first and foremost question is, will you be a good student on our course? And actually, if I can say, I, I think that's fairer as well, because I think if you have an admissions policy that requires students to have had all sorts of different opportunities in life, you are actively disadvantaging um, students who haven't had that for whatever reason. If instead you level the playing field and you say this is simply about assessing your academic ability and letting your natural talent shine through regardless of your background, I think that is so much fairer. Yeah, I totally agree, because obviously different schools have a far, far bigger um, after-school extracurricular offer. If some schools don't yeah. do that, then the students shouldn't be disadvantaged. No, not at all. Well, well thank you very much. That's my, all my uh, FAQs. Have you got anything else you'd like to add just for, for the benefit of uh, anyone considering an application that I haven't brought up already or we haven't discussed yet? I think, I think we've discussed all of, all of the main ones that I kind of get asked. The, the only other um, question, and this relates more to, to perhaps why you might want to consider the university rather than the actual application process. The only other thing I often get asked is, is the question again about, is, is the question about money and how much this costs and whether it's worth it, et cetera. 
So to, just to make a couple of key points here, um, Oxford and Cambridge are no more expensive to study at than any other university. Our tuition fees are regulated by the government. They are the same as more or less every other mainstream university in the country. Um, the main cost, whilst you're with us, obviously, is actually then your living costs. Um, and again here, this is where actually Oxford and Cambridge are different. Not different being more expensive, but in many cases, different being less expensive. As I've already mentioned, as a member of the college, you live in college-owned accommodation for the duration of your undergraduate course. And that's really great because it means we can subsidize your costs. We can keep your costs as low as possible. You don't go and rent privately in our cities, which can be expensive to live in. You live in your college at a rate which is dramatically lower than the market rate for accommodation in the city. Um, we don't ask you to choose, you know, catered hall of residence or self-catering. You have access to kitchen facilities. You have access to the college cafeteria. You can choose to do what you like on a daily basis as suits you. And the other thing is that Oxford and Cambridge, because they are wealthy institutions, have a far higher level of student support available. So we have centralized bursary schemes that students are automatically put on, on the basis of their student finance information. Um, that the students who need financial support receive financial support from the university. Every single Cambridge and Oxford College then also has its own programme of hardship support of grants and bursaries and prizes and, and you name it. Um, but basically underlying all of this is a cast iron guarantee that no student should ever drop out for financial reasons. If the university has made you an offer, if your college has made you an offer, it, it wants you to come and study with them. And if that means that we need to give you significant financial support in order to enable you to take up that offer, then we will do that. That's absolutely fine. These are, as I say, wealthy institutions, and we are fully prepared to do that to enable our students to come and engage with us. We are not universities that believe that our role is to make money for our students. We are universities that believe that our role is to give you the best education we can possibly give you and to ensure that people who deserve access to that education do get access to it. So as I say, if that means financially supporting students, then that's fine. That's a fantastic message and I think a perfect place to finish. So uh, thank you very much, Dr. Mark King. Thank you very much.